welcome to the Contemplative Corazón. I'm Julie Calderon, Mujer Evolving. Peace is possible. Join me as I share personal reflections and conversations with others as we seek to incorporate contemplative practices into our busy lives and our busy world. You're listening to episode 22, Seeds of Light, the second episode of season three. I am proud to introduce the first guest of Into the Heart of a Healer. He is Alan Frischman, and he served as my leadership coach in the past school year. Born and raised in Miami with both bachelor's and master's degrees from Yale, Alan Frischman has been an educator since 1968. He has served as a teacher, principal, consultant, trainer, and leadership coach in Florida, New England, the Bay Area, and China on all levels from middle school to post-college. He is now a leadership coach at UC Berkeley and a teacher at the College of Marin. Alan has published six curriculum units and short stories. He's also been a teacher and student of A Course in Miracles for 47 years. Married with two adult sons, both educators, and three grandsons, Alan lives in Point Richmond, California. Well, thank you, Julie, for inviting me on. I enjoyed working with you in our relationship uh, as coach and coachee and listening to your podcast. So to be part of them is an honor and a lot of fun as well. So I guess there are two main strains that kind of come together. And one of them is being a teacher and the other is my spiritual quest. And they are not dissimilar. In fact, each feeds the other. So the journey to being a teacher, I guess, started way back from Miss Skaggs' class in third grade, when um, for some reason or other, I found myself in front of the class talking about dreams that I had the night before, and I would make up stories. And uh, and the teacher, out of the, either the goodness of her heart or she just wanted a break, would let me go on and on and on. So I made up stories for the class. And it was my first time of being in front of a class, just engaging with others. And that's when I was eight years old. And I continued doing that at Carlway Ele Elementary School in Miami, Florida. So I kind of knew on some level that I really enjoyed being a teacher. And I had it in my head that that's what I would wind up doing. And even though I toyed with, toyed with other things throughout high school and college with other possible career paths, I kind of... Um, always felt that I would be called to teaching. And when I started doing that way back in 1968, I found it, I found it natural. And I guess the analogy would be, as they talk about the fish doesn't know it's in water or the bird doesn't know it's flying in air. If something is, if you're given the ability to do something particularly or ex explicitly to help others, and it doesn't appear as if doing that is a strain. It comes naturally to you. You're not even aware of doing it. 
It may require effort. It may require work. Certainly being a principal requires a lot of work and, and a lot of time. Yet it feels like it's your natural default state. And the question, both in my spiritual life and in my professional life, is asking, what is the purpose in doing this? Like, why am I doing this? What am I serving? I would have the, doesn't it sounds macabre, but I would have the fantasy of being older, which I am now, but even older than that, and being lying on my deathbed and kind of reviewing what I did with my life and asking myself if what I did was worthwhile, was helpful to others. And that was kind of the criterion that I used to determine whether my intention was like noble and honest or whether it was ego-driven. And I found the teaching and then later becoming an administrator and being a teacher of teachers. And then beyond that, being a coach of you know, all the different levels and layers. I, I found I really wanted to have a relationship with God. And I didn't know what form that would take. So I grew up um, in a Jewish culture. I was a lot more pious than my family, who were basically secular Jews. And so I threw myself desperately into that religion and became very, very pious. And uh, through the age of 13, when I was bar mitzvah, and even a little beyond that. And I became, I think, part of my psychology, looking back, was I had tendencies towards being OCD. And in, in the Jewish religion, with its admonitions of saying particular prayers at particular events, fit in very well with that predilection that I had, to the extent that I really couldn't stop it. I don't know if, if you remember the short story, Franny and Zooey by Salinger, where anyway, Zooey keeps repeating this, this Jesus Christ prayer for her, um, to, to the extent that it just becomes totally obsessive and one doesn't know in the, in, in the story, but it seems as if it creates um, psychological issues for her. So that kind of happened to me. I became very obsessed thinking that the way to understand the divine came through the words. And since I was always very facile with words, I was an honors English major and blah, blah, blah. So I thought words were the answer. And again, the Jewish religion is very oriented towards legalistic terms and using words. And then something happened that kind of was a shift for me. I, and and I, I was thinking about it the other day. So I went to Sunday school. And at the end of Sunday school, we would sing um, the song, the, the, uh, the Israeli national anthem. Um, Israel was a fairly new country then, called Hatikva, meaning hope. And for me, it was kind of a burden to sing the song because it was required. But there was a, he was called a shamus. He was the, um, the custodian. And he would stand up when we, the, the kids, were singing the song with tears in his eyes. He, he, he was an older man. And I would look at his devotion. And for me, the attraction of the whole event was not in the words anymore, but was in the devotion underneath the words or behind the words or really inside of the words. And the same thing happened when they would pass the Torah around and do the Shema, which is one of the highlights of the service. And the words were important, but I looked again at the devotion of the congregants. 
And it was very similar to when I was in seventh grade and was in a music class. And the music teacher, Mr. Michaels, uh, played Turkey in the Straw on his violin. And I saw how transported he was and how much happiness it gave him to play the violin. So I started playing the violin. I never was any good at it. <laughs> so what I'm saying is I kind of realized after trying to praying all the time and trying to find the answer to my 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 path to God lay in the words that that it really wasn't there. It was in the space, it was in the experience, it was in the devotion. And so this fits in with education because as I then got involved with being a teacher, I realized that being in that capacity with a power dynamic, it was very easy to fall upon words to intimidate or kind of overwhelm students or try to direct students. Mm -hmm. So I always made a point to pay attention to the intention and the spirit within the class. And when a student responded or didn't respond or, or, or engaged, and later on working with principals when the same thing happened, I wasn't paying attention to actually what they said, but to kind of what was unsaid and what was coming through. So anyway, I know that's a very long answer, but that's, but that was kind of the shift for me and how I put them together. So I decided to devote my life to really paying attention to what the spirit was in all things. And in doing so, I realized that it was non-discriminatory, that it was not exclusive, but was totally open, totally natural, and to totally available to everyone. And was, in fact, our default, our default way of being. So anyway. I love that's... that. That's such a beautiful answer because I think that <laughs> you're you are absolutely explaining that they're not dissimilar, right? That teaching and and a healing and healing the spirit, they all come together, right? And I think unfortunately, and you and I've had lots of discussions around this, that I think there's this this misunderstanding that to teach is to be an expert and and sometimes to kind of, you know, as you shared intimidate and or overwhelm folks with what we know where really I mean I can I can completely relate in that for me it was about service right it was about service yeah. it was about serving a community serving the students um, I'm not saying that that other educators don't have that same motivation but I I really appreciate you asking you know asking those hard questions you know what is the purpose of this and is this really about serving your students or serving your community or is it about your ego and I think that's a question that too often we don't want to address you know and too often we shy away from because it probably cuts a little too close right a lot of folks aren't ready to to go there and, and to really start to examine their own hearts because really it's about examining your own heart right like that's the work that has to be done it's it's totally examining your heart and I think I mean, our culture, particularly Western culture, particularly our materialistic culture, encourages um, it, it encourages hierarchy. It encourages um, power dynamics, discourages or dismisses a kind of in equalization of um, 
not just opportunity, but an equalization of beingness among people. Okay, so working with principals and other school leaders, and I've even on the superintendent level and even beyond that, there are those who really feel as if their job is just like you, is to serve the people that they're given the chance to lead. And then there are those that are into power trips. And I'm sure you've experienced that a lot. And I've, as a principal for many years, I've had some superintendents who clearly just delighted in in being able to strut and fret and just <laughs> be the boss. And um, I try to, you know, I try to be kind to them, but it just seemed to me as if that was, by not paying attention to their heart, that seemed to be a very debilitating way to be. In the world writ large, of course, we could talk in the political sphere. We could talk about those who choose to be in leadership capacities because they really want to serve the people they're elected to serve. And those we see all the time who are just there to be powerful and be important. So I think the shift has to occur when enough beings are just get that services of the highest calling. The other thing is in my religious training, we'll talk about A Course in Miracles later, is that even as a Jew, I always liked Jesus. And that was like, you know, hey, and I was kind of looking at someone who was not into power, but someone who just wanted to share truth with others who wasn't really, who learned how to get outside of his ego totally and let that be a model. So I guess that's the other strain is for leadership in my own life as an educator is just to model a certain way of being. Because it became clear that students or whoever I work with get their information from the way I am more than what I might say or, or what I might propose. Mm -hmm. So I have an obligation to be kind, to be to listen to others, and to model that kind of behavior. Those of us who are parents know that that's so important with our children. And again, looking at leaders in the world, there, there are those whose behavior I would not like to emulate. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I mean, I see them only as teachers in the way that they just exaggerate what it means to be in an ego space so much that I can learn from that. So the other strain that I got from A Course in Miracles, and this is was helpful in teaching as well, the concept in that philosophy is non is non-dualistic. So in other words, there's really no separation between yourself and others. So that if I am triggered by a particular behavior in another being, in another person, whether it's a student or a politician, the fact that it's triggering me, I can only relate to it because I must have that aspect in it myself. So I have to think carefully about casting blame to someone else because I wouldn't see that blame in them if it weren't in me. And for me to change, if it's important for me to change their behavior, this worked well when I had a disciplined students, then it was important for me to model that myself. And that would be the teaching that I, that I would have for them. Conversely, any experience someone else seems to be having, I, you know, I would be having too. So I wouldn't distance myself from that. If, in fact, we're all connected on some level, then it doesn't matter what the identity of the other person is, because I can relate to that if I allow myself to do so. So anyway, that's 
that would be the third strain. Wonderful. You've touched on this already. We've started to talk about this already, but you know, the next thing I want to talk about is is the fact that the theme of this season is is into the heart of a healer, right? So it's the healing, but it's also that heart work. And we've already started to kind of touch on that presents as 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 the way to be. That's a crucial question because like you, like all of us, I am living in the world. And so I can't run away from it. I suppose it's it's kind of easy to become a monk or just kind of go off on a in a cave somewhere. Uh, yet we're not called to do that, particularly those of us in this culture. Um, when someone is acting out, there are two ways I can see that. I could see that person as being bad, or I can see that person as looking for love. And you experience that as a principal all the time when you have to deal with students who are going through difficult situations. So if someone is struggling or someone is upset, the best way to be around that person is to love them. And if that person is just in a loving space, the best way to be with them is to love them. So no matter what you do, the best thing to do, well, actually the only thing that'll be effective is to, is to love them. Now the question becomes, what does love look like? And as a principal, you can't, someone just like was in a fight or had a knife in school. You really can't, you know, just, I mean, you may want to hug them, but you can't really do that. So you have to interpret what it means to love them. So I think that's the answer to the world is to not let yourself fall into despair, but to dwell on the little seeds of light that occur in any situation. So just to get political about it, when I think about Vladimir Putin, or I think about Donald Trump, or I think about Orban or people who are into a kind of authoritarian mindset, I just, you know, send them positive thoughts because just getting angry at them, which is very easy to do, just is playing their game. Right. And I know that sounds very kind of airy-fairy and passive, but I think it's effective. And if we go back to our good friend Jesus again, I mean, isn't that what he said? Yeah. 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 I've had this discussion with students. I've had it with my daughter when they're upset at someone else, you know, a peer or maybe even an adult that they know. I often will say, you know, like you said, anger is very limiting. It's 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 this short blast, you know, and you'll feel you'll potentially feel some release through it, but all it's going to do is fester, right? Whereas if you like you said, forgive or empathize yeah. with that other person, how much how much better that's going to be, how that, how much more healing that is. And, and, you know, sometimes, you know, teenagers look at you like, what are you talking about? But I think, you know, I know at least with my, especially with my daughter, because we have a much closer relationship and it's more intimate. Mm -hmm. I often will say, you know, pray for your, not enemies, because, you know, I don't know that they use enemies as much as they might, your haters, right? <laughs> pray for your haters, right? And, and she says that she's tried it. You're right, mom. I am going to wish, I wish him well. I wish her well. And, and initially, you know, it may come out a little petty and you may feel a little petty, but at the end of it all, if you keep reflecting on it, you know, it is, it is very 
it's healing, it's liberating to be able to move past just the rage and, and really just kind of move forward. Right. With Absolutely. That. Now, a lot of a lot of wise people have said just to wait a little bit when first you're overcome with emotions. I mean, the old saw is to count to 10 or whatever it may be. <laughs> and there, there have been many teachers who say when your first response will be of the ego, because that's your immediate response. And maybe there's some, maybe there's some evolutionary need for that back in the days when we were threatened by tigers and that kind of thing, just to immediately <laughs> respond. Yet, if we just step back for a bit, then I think, at least in my experience, I can see that the anger is, that that the trigger that came is not really what I thought it was. Again, going back to that whole non-dualistic concept, if I'm angry by about something somebody did, it's because I have that, aspect in myself to recognize it and as someone who's been in relationships for many years uh, i found that can be a way to avoid getting getting in arguments so if i'm upset because you're not putting the top on the toothpaste properly or something like that what do you, you know come on you know that that that's not what i'm upset about there's really something else and you know that as a principle, if a student is acting out and does things that require discipline, there's something else going on. Mm -hmm. And it requires great skill and love and understanding and safety for the kid, for you to be able to figure out what that is and then to fulfill that need. Because otherwise, the student or whoever it is will keep repeating that action or or intensify it. So, so you mentioned A Course in Miracles um, a couple mm -hmm. of times. And I know that that is something that's been really important for you in attending to your spirit. Do you want to talk a little bit about about yeah. miracles? Well, yeah. Well, thank you. First, I'll say, Course in Miracles does not tout to be the exclusive pathway to happiness and peace of mind. It is, I think, in my experience, a pathway. So when I talk about a Course in Miracles, I am not proselytizing at all. If someone is interested in in coming to my class or someone wants wants to read the book and do the exercises i you know i recommend doing that yet there's room for i've been doing this course in miracles work for almost 50 years wow and there are you know since however 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 long it's been since 1976 i don't even know how long that's been i guess 47 years now yeah so i know people who are who are very strong Catholics or Buddhists or Jews who follow A Course in Miracles. So it's not a religion. It's more like a way of kind of a way of kind of being in the world and kind of learning how to get outside of your ego. A Course in Miracles will say that we always have the choice of how we interpret something. You know, it, it goes back to like Hamlet said, nothing's either good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. And or even you could look at quantum physics that talk about subatomic particles only have a particular position once they're observed. So the, the idea is that our understanding of the world is not an objective, solid reality, but is based on our own expectations of what the world is going to be. Which means that if we want the world to kind of shift in what it shows up to us as, then we need to shift our our attitude towards the world. 
And that's great because it gives us agency. So there, I see there are just basically two ways to look at it. Either we're at the effect of the world, we, we, we are victims of the world we see, in which case we're kind of screwed. Yes, we have no control over the situation. Maybe we're lucky and we're born to a wealthy family or we're really good looking or, you know, or something like that. Or we win the lottery. But that is, that makes your happiness conditional. And you're never happy unless something else happens which you have no control over. On the other hand, what the Course says, as many others have said, is that basically you create your own world or at least you create your own interpretation of the world. So one of the phrases the Course uses is that projection makes perception, so that we have an idea of what, of what something is going to be, then we project it out, and then we verify it through our, through our perception. It's kind of like male refrigerator blindness, so which means like a man and a wife are living together, and the wife moves the ketchup from the top shelf in the refrigerator to another shelf in the refrigerator. And then the man doesn't, says, honey, where's the, where's the ketchup? It, it's not there anymore. That term male refrigerator blindness, because it wasn't where you expected it to be. You, you don't open yourself up to the possibility that, that it could be something else, i.e. your perception of where the ketchup should be is affecting your, or you your projection of it is affecting your perception of what you see or don't see, which means this is, can be kind of scary because it means you yourself have the power to determine your own happiness. But ultimately, even though it appears scary, it is, it's, it's kind of very liberating because it shows you have the agency to do so. And isn't that what we want as educators? We want our students to feel they have the agency to get control of their own lives. Particularly, Julie, you're working with, with children who maybe come from difficult circumstances, difficult family situation, or difficult demographic, or other situations that can seem to make it hard for them. And to get them to realize that they have the opportunity to not to be at the effect of all the things that happen to them or could happen to them is a big gift if they can get that. And, and kind of really believe that. And when they do, our heart just lights up because, you know, we remember those kids that kind of kind of overcame their feeling of of being victimized. Yes. Um, okay, and so that's, so I think that's, that's what healing is, really. Healing is getting in touch with the power you have inside of yourself to know that you can choose a pathway that is going to be loving and helpful in spite of what outside circumstances may appear to be. Thank and that's kind sharing. of, yeah, that's kind of, and I've been doing this course in miracles thing for a while. It, you know, I find it very helpful to me. And so you're currently teaching a course. Yeah. I'm teaching a course at the college of Marin and it's most of the people it's in the community community education part of their program. So most of the people in the class are tend to be in their 60s and so forth. It's a major shift to realize that you have power to control what's going to happen in your own world. And I found that some of my students, almost all my students have initial resistance to that mm. because it really goes against, 
you turn on the TV or you or you go through your social media and you're told that you will be happy if you X, that happiness or success or appreciation or admiration is conditional upon something else that's outside of you. And that's what you need to do if you want somebody to buy something. <laughs> because you have to make them feel as if they have a lack of that. There's a lack in them that can be satisfied by by buying this fancy product or driving this car or looking a certain way. And that can never lead to happiness. That can only lead to competition because there's always going to be someone who's richer or better looking or smarter or if, if you're playing that game. Right. And I think that's what scares people sometimes. Like when, you know, I talk about the fact that this podcast is a, uh, is about contemplative well first of all contemplative the word itself sends people like running for the hills like it's a big word what she what is that but then when i try to explain well it's you know it's about kind of attending to your spirit and, and spiritual practice well then again right that's not something that people feel that it's not i mean i suppose you could have a checklist of, of things that you could do to attend to your spirit but at the end of the day it, it's it's really it's attending to your spirit. So it's really not, you know, here are the top, here are the five things you're going to do to, to be a more contemplative person. It doesn't quite work like that. Like you said, there are many paths and, and everyone has their own journey. And, mm -hmm. and for me, it's really just about kind of bringing it into the conversation because the world doesn't, right? And so I'm going to bring it into the conversation because it's something that's important for me and hopefully it'll help somebody else that maybe is seeking to make meaning. But I agree with you that, you know, so very often, I think that's why people shy away from talking about spirit, talking about their heart, talking about um, how they're going to, to find peace and happiness, because I think we often want that magic bullet, right? We want to be able to hear, oh, it's, it's this one thing. It's this one practice. It's this one teaching and I think it's very scary when, when you kind of tell people, no, that's not necessarily the answer, right? And like you, I've, I've always made it really clear that I'm not here to proselytize and say that, you know, Christianity is the way to go because that doesn't work for everyone. That's not the path that, that everybody is, is meant to take. Anyways, I don't want to go too much off to the side there on that, but thank you. Well, no, th well, thank you for doing the work that you do. It's not just that the world the signals our culture gives are are opposed to the heart or are different from the heart they actively oppose it because if people if if enough people decided that they that they wanted to be in a loving heart space and didn't need all these little bells and whistles then that would make a big difference in our economy and <laughs> and then so there are there are there are active forces out there to make people feel that there's something wrong with them. You know, I suspect that most people in at least our culture and perhaps in the world feel as if there's something wrong with them. And the idea of going in the heart is that that's 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 our natural state. So if you think that to give into contemplation and heart space is something you have to do because it's unnatural that you have to read this book on inner yoga and you have to like do 52 practices to do it, then it becomes an effort like anything else. 
like uh, learning how to program or something. <laughs> if you realize that, that that is your natural state, that you don't really have to do anything except just to go inside and the contemplative practice and just get in touch with your heart space. Any one of us who has been a parent has that feeling with their children. I mean, think of what it's like when your baby is born or when you see your little toddler smile at you. We all have that in us, you know? And and I know you've done that as a principal. We've talked about this. I've done that. I was a principal mostly in high schools, and some of these kids would be 6'4 and weigh 250 and a lot bigger than I am. And yet, to me, they were just like little children. I mean, I wouldn't tell them that, but that's how I held them. Because with the same kind of love that uh, like a father would have for his child. So we have that natural nurturing part of us inside. And just to realize that that's who we are and just to let it develop and not be afraid of it. And to let go of the need for bigger, better, stronger, tougher, or glitzier things. And so hopefully that's what education does. And that's what all spiritual practices do, is they prepare, the, they prepare the practitioner or student to feel that she is complete within herself and can go out into the world and make the right decisions, no matter what path she's following. I think Don Juan called it the path of the heart. And because the mind can, the mind can give you mixed messages. Because there are so many, because we can, at least I can, I suppose, expect most people could justify almost anything cognitively or kind of intellectually. But the heart knows. And I don't think the heart lies to you. No. So if, if, and if as a culture, if as a society, we all follow the way of the heart, then <laughs> things would be so much I think things would be so much nicer, you know. So I know that you're doing this, particularly on on um on the third year. Yeah, so thank you for that, for even getting that out. And again, just being as you are as as a principal and being truthful and just showing your heart and not being afraid to do that because it can be vulnerable when you're in a position like yours. Is, is such a powerful beacon for others to learn from. So I appreciate you doing that. And you're doing the work every day. So really, thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Well, you definitely you answered you answered the final question, which is that what oh. advice you would give to to folks that are are interested or are listening in and and saying, you know, so how do I how do I start to do this work? And I you kind of already answered it, but yeah, what kind of advice would you give to folks that are interested in spiritual practices or in contemplation or or any of these topics that we've touched on in this conversation? You know, again, I think there are many pathways, and like going to Mr. Moscovich, uh, being 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 moved at the singing of the Israeli national anthem. It's like, what is it that moves you? And, and it may well be a practice within Catholicism. It may be a practice in Orthodox Christianity, maybe a Buddhist or a Hindu practice. That doesn't matter. It's not the practice itself. It's the space that you get into when you do it. So my advice, therefore, would be to explore, be honest with yourself and explore what it is that really makes you feel in a loving space. 
maybe it's just kind of looking at the birds outside or maybe it's maybe it's just like dancing or 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 playing jazz music or i mean i don't know it could be so many things my advice is you already have it in you just find that particular path because i believe we were all born with kind of a special ability to be happy and to share and to serve and the nice thing is that each of us has a very unique talent to bring to the world and it may be being a teacher or it may be being a plumber it may be being i mean i don't know what it is but whatever it is if you follow the path with the heart then you're going to make the world better and most importantly you're going to be in a state of peace and happiness and when you are as i expect on your deathbed contemplating whether you've lived a good life then you would feel really comfortable that you had and you would be ready to go on to whatever's next well thank you alan i think that's the perfect place to conclude our conversation <laughs> okay. right so on the deathbed <laughs> <laughs> i am well, so not for a while Julie. no 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 not me <laughs> not, no not for, for not not for you for a long time. The world <laughs> needs you, Julie. The world needs you. Okay. Thank well, you, thank Alan. you for the opportunity. And I really, I really enjoy. Gracias for listening to the Contemplative Corazón. Please share this episode. Please rate review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Find me on social media, on Instagram or Linktree at Mujer Evolving. Gracias por su apoyo. Thank you for the support.